Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. Good evening, everyone. This is... Terry Hutchinson, along with my co-host, John Gee and Kevin Christensen, welcome back to the second hour of our broadcast here for Interpreter Foundation Radio. want to thank the Interpreter Foundation for giving us the opportunity. The Interpreter Foundation is a, a group of people who are uh, anxious to defend, promote, explain uh, the doctrines, teachings, practices and scriptures of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and they do it through faithful scholarship. Uh, the Interpreter Foundation puts out a, at least one article per week on the Interpreter Journal, which is online and it's free. Uh, all the participants in the Interpreter Foundation are volunteers. We have a lot of other projects going on, one of which right now is a movie project which will, uh, first of all, be a movie and then a documentary as well as some Internet information about uh, the transfer of the leadership in the church from the death of Joseph Smith to when Brigham Young and the Quorum of the Twelve uh, accepted the leadership. And, and kind of that period of time that was uh, a little bit in question. And so... Our last project that was of that nature was Witnesses, all about the Witnesses of the Book of Mormon. You can find that at uh, bookofmormonwitnesses.org as well as on the Interpreter Foundation website. And there's a lot of other things, including this broadcast, podcasts, study guides, study interviews, books, articles, uh, conferences, videos, all kinds of things on the website. Any donation that you make to the Interpreter Foundation is tax deductible because it's a 50C3 corporation. And if you want to know more about the Interpreter Foundation finances, there's also a section on the website for that. Um, we are also brought to you today by one of our sponsors, the Kimber Academy. And uh, the Kimber Academy is a K-12 private school. And uh, it is a school unlike public schools that keeps God in the classroom. It's a special place where teachers guide students through faith and morality. They've got quality, engaging curriculum. And at Kimber Academy, every parent's voice is heard. Now in Utah, Kimber Academy is located in Linden, Utah, and there are many other locations throughout the United States. So if you want to find out more or schedule a tour, call the director, Jessica Bianco, at 801-382-7158. That's 801 801- 382-7158, or you can go to kimberschool.com. That's kimberschool.com, all one word. So we want to thank them for this opportunity. Um, this evening for our second hour, we want to take a few minutes to talk about the importance of the Sabbath day. As I mentioned at the beginning of the program, we are a minority here uh, broadcasting in the face of some major event that's obviously on the Sabbath day. And <laughs> I'd like to just take a minute from each of us and talk about the importance of the Sabbath to, to us and, and from the scriptures. And one of the things that, uh, I, I, that, that I found when, when we wrote uh, a book that I completed a couple of years ago with my father-in-law, we had a section that talked about the uh, feasts um, that were... Uh, required under the law of Moses, particularly the ones that required an appearance at the temple. But one of the most important festivals and feasts that there was, was the Sabbath festival. And I had never really thought of it as a temple type of celebration. But um, as we did the research and as we read the, wrote the section, um, the importance of the Sabbath was illustrated by the fact that every time the Sabbath was revealed to Moses in, in the book of Exodus, it was accompanied by an appearance of the Lord. There were five of those. So every time the children of Israel would see the glory of Jehovah or Yahweh. It's in Exodus 16, Exodus 20, 24, 34, and then another one in Numbers. So um, every single time the Lord would do something miraculous that also demonstrated the importance of the Sabbath. And the one that always came to my mind 
was the Lord was providing manna for the children of Israel in order to feed them while they were wandering in the wilderness. And they had to gather the manna enough for every single day. If they gathered too much so they didn't have to gather it the next day, it went bad. But on the Sabbath day, they didn't gather it. So the day before, they could gather two days worth and then it wouldn't spoil overnight, although it would every other day, which required an extra level of faith on the part of the Israelites because their personal and physical experience was that the manna would spoil overnight. However, on the eve of the Sabbath, it did not spoil. And so then if they didn't gather enough, well, they, they wound up fasting involuntarily. So um, there are just all kinds of these things. But essentially for me, I, I came to understand that the Sabbath in terms of time is also associated with the temple in terms of space because it's a way for us every single week to get more proximity to God's presence. And so the Sabbath is incredibly important. And I think oftentimes in our, in our lives, in, in everything that goes on around us, in our cultures, we forget that and we don't get the opportunity to take advantage of that. Uh, John, what, what have you got on the Sabbath? And then we'll go to Kevin. Um, I'm, I like your uh, analysis of connecting it with the temple because the Sabbath, almost identical words are used between Exodus 20 and in Genesis uh, chapter 2 referring to the Sabbath. And Genesis 2, we know, is, is a text that is used in the temple. And the Sabbath becomes a sign of the covenant. That if you keep, are keeping the Sabbath, if you're keeping your covenant, you're keeping the Sabbath. And so I like the covenant connection there with the Sabbath. Um, I also like the way that that President Nelson has talked about the Sabbath and it's how in the Law of Moses the Sabbath is a sign of our covenant with the Lord. And if we think about what sort of sign do we want to show the Lord, then what we do on the Sabbath, what, what do we want to do on the Sabbath day to show our covenant with the Lord then it becomes easier to determine what is or is not appropriate to do. And we don't need a long list of things that are appropriate or a long list of things that are inappropriate. Um, I'll just mention that um, the you talked about this being an unusual group, anybody who's actually listening to us live. Um, <laughs> And I just remember growing up that there were two Sundays when we weren't sure whether we were going to have enough Aaronic priesthood holders to pass the sacrament. Um, and one was this particular event, and the other one was the beginning of hunting season. And that was up in Laramie, Wyoming, if that, I remember. That was up in Wyoming. and uh, But we would, it was... It's always a serious question whether there'd be enough ironic priesthood holders or even priesthood holders in general. I, I stand corrected, that. Lander. I apologize. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, and maybe that was just an, a strange situation of that particular location, but it's always. Um, it was a much bigger thing when you were holding sacrament meeting in the evenings. Yeah. Well, that's right. That was back in the day when uh, and, we didn't and have the three-hour block. It was interesting, the, the sisters who would show up without their husbands or their sons. Um, and if you wanted to see sort of where, uh, I, you know, it, it's hard to tell in, in a lot of cases, but uh it it didn't look good 
Well, so, uh, Kevin, your thoughts? Yeah. Well, I'm looking at Doctrine and Covenants, Section 59, and it's, you know, talking about gratitude here, of course, and then uh, the, that thou mayest more fully keep thyself unspotted from the world. Thou shalt go to the house to prayer and offer up thy sacraments upon my holy days. For verily this is the day appointed to you to rest from your labors and pay thy devotions to the Most High. Nevertheless, thy vows shall be offered up in righteousness on all days and at all times, but remember that on this the Lord's day thou shalt offer thine oblations on thy sacraments and to the Most High, confessing thy sins unto the brethren and before the Lord. And then talks about various things to do and about being cheerful about it. But just that uh, initial line, you know, the vision of gratitude and uh, just, just have some thanks. And, you know, Benjamin gets into that about, you know, how life and breath and everything we're thankful for and, and to just get some perspective. But that sense of that thou mayest more fully keep thyself and spotted from the world, it's, I think, um, we just need to recharge and, you know, to, to attend our meetings, to visit with the saints, to fellowship with one another, to, you know, to listen to testimonies and thoughts and then to see people themselves that are gathered in a group and then singing all together and then participating in the sacrament. It's, uh, it's something that I've learned to take joy in and appreciate. It's something that I, I you know, when, when I have the chance, I want to do it. When I, you know, when I'm prevented for some reason, then I, I definitely miss being there. But it, it is an opportunity to, to just tune in and tune up and, and get our minds working and uh, to have that as something that helps, definitely helps me and my life and something that not only helps, but I definitely need it. And uh, I'm thankful for the opportunity that we have to do it, to, to have a good word here and to have most of the places, I, well, all of the places that I've lived, to have places to go and enjoy a sacrament meeting, you know, even in uh, on my mission, some very you know, relatively small branches where sometimes you know, 10 or 12 or 15 people or 30 people. But I remember my uh, my daughter uh, for a while when she was you know, going to school in Milwaukee and had to take a bus to go to a sacrament meeting. And uh, in a fairly small branch there at the time she went, but she had experiences there that anchored her testimony for the rest of her life. So it's, it's something worth doing and and worth savoring when we have the chance to do it not to take for granted but to be grateful for the opportunity yeah i i thank you for sharing that kevin i i reflect on when i was in the military and occasionally the duty would require me to be to be uh doing things on sunday and i couldn't go to church i i was where i i was not able to go now, the military makes as many opportunities for you to do that as possible, but occasionally there are some duty assignments that just require it. And it was always it was always an experience to me to be away for that extra week that uh, I really missed it. And um, so I, I think it's something for all of us to reflect on and to especially... Uh, use those opportunities, those sacraments, those covenants, if we will, that we make with the Lord to get closer to him. Um, a couple of books that come to mind, uh, Religious Study Center had one just come out recently in the last year called Sacred Time, The Sabbath as a Perpetual Covenant. It's a collection of articles edited, edited by Gay Stratton. And there, there's uh, another one that really was educational for me. It's by Jared Calloway. It's called The Sabbath and the Sanctuary, Access to God in the Letter to the Hebrews in its Priestly Context. It's published by Moore Seebeck from 2013. And that was the one that really started me thinking about the relationship between the Sabbath and the temple. And uh, there's another one that's come out fairly recently by Daniel Timmer called Creation, Tabernacle, and Sabbath. Um, and it's published by Vanden Hoek and Ruprecht. I hope I said that right. I can usually get the German correct. I have troubles with other things. But anyway, we, uh, we just want to thank all of you for listening and for participating and for being with us for these topics of conversation. Um, moving on to the next uh, topic, we, uh, Kevin, a couple of weeks ago, released a part one of a review of Grant Hardy's Annotated Book of Mormon. And I think each of the three of us have a, have a different viewpoint on that book. Uh, I was able to interview Grant with uh, Martin Tanner, 
and uh, I, 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 each of you know what the beautiful thing is that each of us, we don't speak with one voice here at Interpreter. There are different ways to have faithful scholarship, and I think um, one of the questions that really came out was, um, you know, the annotated Book of Mormon has a specific audience. It's a for generally for non-members, generally for scholars and those who are interested in the Book of Mormon, kind of to provide an introduction. In his interview with us, Grant said it was because uh, he wanted to start the conversations. And so I guess that raised the question for me uh, after, you know, having private conversations with John and, and listening to Kevin and reading his review, where do we um, introduce, uh, I guess, where do we draw the line when we are introducing the church or the Book of Mormon or its doctrines to the non-LDS scholarly audience? I think that that's a way. Do we are we giving up if we say if we acknowledge? Okay, the majority of biblical scholarship says there are two Isaiahs. Okay, that 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 was one that came to mind, and and occasionally in the book Grant would have the use of a Grant would have the use of a term like, and this is an anachronism, but. Um, Lehi's using it in this way because he had an additional revelation or something like that. And then later on in the notes, it, it kind of follows. But I, I guess the question is, where do we uh, draw the line? Do we, do we alienate the majority of those we're trying to reach if we, if we immediately go to the unity of Isaiah theory, which we'll talk about a little later on the program, I guess, something like that. What, you know, um, Mark Johnson texted me when he wasn't able to be here, and I, I thought his text was very helpful because um, he said, how to do apologetics. Uh, what are the researching the questions looking, no, that, not that one. Uh, I'd like to discuss the idea of faithful scholars who publish with academic publishers. Is there a danger that the lay members might mistake their academic tone for doubt from the scholar towards the restoration of the gospel? Um, should scholars feel an obligation to the members to also be faith-promoting? And we, we happen to have a couple of scholars sitting right here who have published in, in various venues, John in particular, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about John's adventures with Isaiah a little later in the program. Well. In general detail, but not specifics. But we're, we're talking about, we're the, talking issue about the issue here. And the issue is, I mean, you know, you want to acknowledge uh, when, when you're, at least for me, when I'm trying to convince a judge of something, I have to acknowledge that there's a counter argument before I, uh, at, before I really address that argument. Yeah. And if I don't, then first of all, I open myself up to being questioned about things that I just don't even know. And that produces a look on my face of called my deer in the headlights look, and we don't wanna we don't wanna go there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um I, I you know, where do we draw that line, especially on such important issues as the gospel? Kevin, we'll start with you. Because you're the guy that wrote the that wrote the review. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think he, you commented to me that I should have uh, quoted uh, his uh, testimony, you know, from from the volume. And he says he says in his introduction, he, here's his personal statement of faith: For anyone interested in my own religious background, I am an active member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. I believe that God has spoken to people throughout history in different ways and in different faith traditions. But the Book of Mormon is special. Over the course of my lifetime, the scripture has shaped my identity, engaged, my, engaged me intellectually and spiritually, sustained my faith, inspired me to be a better person, and I hope brought me closer to Christ. I believe the Book of Mormon is a gift from God, a re revealed translation of a record written by ancient American prophets. You know, so, and, and I think uh, he just sees that, this is giving a context. He's wanting to be fair to his audience to say where he's coming from. And... Um, in the material that I write, you know, I've, I've most often published in 
in uh, apologetic journals, so I, I haven't had to apologize uh, for my faith or explain it all that often. But if I expect to be convincing, I have to recognize the counter-arguments. You know, I have to recognize that I'm trying to persuade someone who has encountered them or who's wanting to see what they can do with them. But so, and that's one of the reasons why I, I harp on Thomas Kuhn and paradigm debate so much is because there's, you know, to recognize that there's a difference. And there's a, there's a difference between an ideological dismissal of an argument and actually doing a comparison and to say, okay, here's, here's the best case on this side, here's the best case on that side, and we're going to try and measure it in a way that may not convince everybody, but at least I'm giving my reasons. And I'm making a case that, you know, that I think is in, supports faith. And sometimes there might be several different ways of looking at something that's, you know, still kind of up in the air, but at least to be able to, you know, say that there is room for faith. And in some cases, to, to have said, well, at this point I don't have an answer, and uh, maybe a, a couple of years later someone will hand one to me, or I'm, I might get inspired, you know, to, to see something I hadn't realized before. But to realize that then over time, uh, the case gets better and better. And uh, when Alma talks about uh, your knowledge is not perfect, you know, even though you may have had, you know, the enlightenment, the the, the spiritual experience, the the fruitfulness, but he says your knowledge isn't perfect, but you have to keep nurturing the seed. So um, I want to invite people to come into that process with open eyes and uh, and an open mind and, and an open spirit to be receptive for what's there. Because even if we don't have all the answers, neither do the skeptics. You know, <laughs> there's, there's just so much in the Book of Mormon that... Uh, a lot of them just never so much as touch. You know, they have certain things that they use, like, you know, they're trying to wave kryptonite at it as if it'll make us go away, but we're not going away, and the case just keeps getting stronger and stronger, and so it, and it's sharing some of the, the reasons for that and the growth in that, and that, uh, you know, when I started getting interested in this stuff, I think you could get all of the real good material, the real solid stuff, put it on half a bookshelf. And now... Well, that's because you're older than us. Yeah. And now, you know, it's just my own books cover a wall. And that's not everything that, certainly everything that's available. It's just what I can afford to get in, you know, in, in books. And there are people approaching the, the scriptures from just a range of intellectual backgrounds and, and training and, and asking questions that it would have never have occurred to me in my life to have asked and showing me things in the text that I never would have seen without that. And for me, that's, it's a constant, you know, it, it makes me humble because I realize there's so much out there that I, I could never have seen by myself, but also grateful that it's been shared with me so that I can have my mind expanded and my soul enlarged and my appreciation of the miracle of the Book of Mormon and, of, you know, the resurrection and the atonement and the restoration and these things, you know, to, to have them to enter my life as, as, a, as a reality that's binding upon me and inviting to me, and challenging, and exciting, all at the same time. Okay, John? Um, so, when it comes to publishing in non-Latter-day Saint forums, for the most part, uh, they will not allow uh, your faith to show up in your scholarship. Right. Um, they allow it in certain ways. And so the, the typical way of dealing with this is to bracket the issue or just say, yeah, I'm not going to deal with this. Um, or you have to make it you have to make your arguments so that it can work. It's neutral. So it, 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 it does, can neutral. work for either. Um, so you can say, well, Grant Hardy can get away with saying, well, I personally believe the, the Book of Mormon is ancient. But he can't argue that it's ancient and publish with Oxford University Press. And... 
Well, actually, was, I, th- I think he, he clarified that. He could, to a certain extent, with their study Bible editions, which is what this is. But Terrell Givens has told me, and I think he, while well, Grant didn't really know, you couldn't do that in the normal trade publications right, for right. Oxford no, that's University. In normally, yes. you can't do that. So, um, And there are a couple of ways of handling this. And one of the ways that's popular among a lot of Latter-day Saint uh, intellectuals is to say, okay, we're going to bracket it or we're going to make the argument so that it's, so that we think that it's valid for a non-believing audience. Mm-hmm. And we do a horrible job at estimating the size of that audience. Um, we tend to think that it's going to amount in the hundreds when it's probably can be numbered on the fingers of one hand. Um, I think we, we est- estimate, but, but the idea is it's okay to, to publish in these venues if you check your religion at the door. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I've always been struck by this quote from Elder Holland back in 2012. So this is the quote. Lesson number one for the establishment of Zion in the 21st century you never check your religion at the door. Not ever. That kind of discipleship cannot be. It isn't discipleship at all. So um, my typical way, and I've published a fair amount in a large number of, of secular presses. I've published with Oxford, with the Greuter, with Horosovitz, with Brill, with Paters, um, with Prager, um, and a whole bunch of others. I just can't remember them all now. But So I've published with some of these major presses, but what you may not bring... I bring all of the arguments that I'd bring in a normal work, but I may not mention the Latter-day Saint connection. Yeah. And so that allows them to evaluate the argument shorn of a connection which they would well, instinctively if, if, it, if it came reject. with the connection it would they would reject they, it. They would definitely. reject it. it yeah. uh, but but you can put all of the rest of the argument in there. Mm-hmm. And so the argument that you would use and they can say, yeah, this is a der- uh, valid argument if we're not mentioning Joseph Smith in that case. But you can then, and in a Latter-day Saint venue, you can just bring it in where it's already passed the peer review externally and point out the connection to the, the saints. Uh, and that seems to be a different way of doing it where you're not checking your religion at the door. You're bringing all of that in. You're just... Well, you're you're being silent about it as opposed to doing a bracket and acknowledging this is what I'm doing. Bracketing it is is saying, well, we're not going to deal with this issue. I can still deal with the issue. Mm -hmm. I just may not make the final step as to how it applies. But it also depends on your subject matter. I mean, pretty clearly in, in what you're writing in those venues, it really doesn't have anything to do with Joseph Smith as per se, or even the Book of Mormon necessarily. Or, or, uh, or other ancient scripture. Well, it does and it doesn't, but you Mm -hmm. need to have the background arguments and this is a good place to publish all the background arguments. And you can do that. And, they can evaluate the background arguments mm-hmm. and decide whether mm-hmm. they're going to let you publish them or not. Um, I've published quite a bit on facsimile two in Egyptological venues. Um, I don't deal with Joseph Smith's interpretations. I deal with ancient Egyptian interpretations. But if you want to make the connection, what is, how do Joseph Smith's interpretation match ancient Egyptian connections mm-hmm 
or interpretations. You have to know you what have the to ancient know what Egyptian the ancient one and were. it's perfectly legitimate to mm-hmm. pu- publish something like that in a uh, in an on ladder saying venue. And they're in a better position to evaluate that than Latter-day Saints. And you just, you don't have, you can deal with um, solving the one side of the equation. What I think, but the problem with, with publishing this, and I won't name a name here, of somebody who got something on the Book of Mormon published in non-letter saint venue and by saying that Joseph Smith wrote it. Mm-hmm. And I know that that still, there are uh, members of the church who question whether he believes that Joseph Smith wrote it or whether he believes it ancient. I don't know because from his published work, you can't tell. It's, it sounds like he doesn't. Mm-hmm. And and yes, that creates problems. And so you have to decide in some cases which master you're going to serve. Because in some, some cases, you can't serve both. And so you have to decide. And uh, I make that decision one way. But I, if you're, I mean, if we look at Grant Hardy's study, Book of Mormon, Mm-hmm. The the Maxwell one, or the University of Illinois one, or the Oxford one. Well, okay, so there, there's that issue too. <laughs> okay. But I'm thinking the Oxford one. The okay, the the one. recent okay. one, the annotated. recent one. So so he publishes this in in with Oxford and um and says that this is for a non-letter saint audience. Well, that audience is very small. Most of the people who buy it are going to be buying are going to be Latter-day Saints. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one yeah, of the I things. Yeah, I think so. One of the things with Oxford is they've realized that Latter-day Saints will buy books, so they'll publish books on Latter-day Saints subjects with the proviso that you can't, uh, that you can't be seen to be arguing for your faith. And so... Yeah, it's a publishing venue, and Oxford's willing to do that because Oxford is a, a press that has to make money, and Latter-day Saints will buy books. And so they're, they're so kind it's of a, happy it's with their assumption. Of, it's an assumption that there will probably be more non-Latter-day Saints buy it than Latter-day Saints. No, that's the assumption that we make. Yes. But the assum- actual reality is more Latter-day Saints will buy okay. it than not. It'll be interesting Saints. to see if that's the case. But I, I do think it kind of a, it kind of um, varies from scholar to scholar. Would that be fair to say? Oh, Where they want to draw the line? Uh, certainly different scholars will draw the lines. And, and then the different venues, too. And and the the venues. But if you're going to have... So the the root of integrity is integral, you know, is is a, mm-hmm. this whole person. If you're going to be a whole person, you have to find a way of, you know, if you want to split yourself and say, okay, I'm going to do uh, only do when I'm in when I have this hat on, I only do this hat, and when I've got that hat on, I only do this other thing, and narrow the twain shall meet. Um, I mean, that's what James called double-mindedness. But if you're going to be a whole person, you have to find a way of saying of a, a strategy where you're not saying one thing to one audience and another thing to another audience. Yeah. And uh, I think many Latter-day Saint scholars have confused people who are in both audiences because they hear them say one thing to one audience and something completely different to a different audience. And what that says to a Latter-day Saint who's sitting in both those audiences is this person's untrustworthy and they're a hypocrite. Mm -hmm. Um, You have to find a way to say the same thing 
regardless, regardless of, of the audience. Okay. That's a, that's a good point. Kevin, um, we've been losing you a bit. Are you there? Yep. Okay. <laughs> good. All right. Let's but move on, on to another, another question that uh, had come up, and it's kind of raised by your review, and that is, what is really the value of a study Book of Mormon, regardless of whether Grant Hardy did it, Brant Gardner, Thomas Valletta, um, you know, whoever. We've got these, these journal versions, which are, are pretty handy. I, I mentioned I did one for each of our four oldest grandchildren um, where we, Janae and I, annotated, uh, you know, various things that we felt should be there and there's still plenty of room for them to write for themselves but um kevin what what do you prefer in terms of a study edition because there were things in grant's annotations that i found useful and i think a lot of latter-day saints would we see thomas valletta's study edition you know selling quite well at desert book and perhaps some of that's marketing perhaps some of that's the usefulness uh, I remember I, I I was talking with John earlier, and I found that I um, there we go. Now we know that Kevin's with us. That's the magic number. But Kevin, I was going to ask, what is a study edition of the Book of Mormon that you prefer to use for yourself? Um, that's a good question. Um. I have several, or you know, a couple of different ones. I, like I've got the reader's guide, and I've I've, I've got the, uh, the annotated edition. And uh, but personally, it's 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 just more this, you know, it's just the range of scholarship that I'm I'm wanting to dip into. It's not just a single book. Um, I can see the value for some people, but you know, since I've been uh, seriously, you know, following different kinds of scholarship for a long time it's just that whole range of things and i you know if i want to just sit down and read the book i read my missionary bible that has my marks in it and uh so so, so it's the kevin I, christensen I, annotated version yeah well yeah and it, it's sound but i i like to see what you know there, there are people that i think are really really good readers of the book of mormon and uh, to read a couple of different ones and i think it's a good thing you know i uh, working on the annotated Book of Mormon for a review, I thought it was it was very helpful uh, in some ways. And um, but I can compare different approaches. You know, like I've got Brant Gardner's volumes, and I've uh, that I that I find that there are people that just want to look at the text and consider the plain meaning of the text. But you know, the context is going to be as much of the meaning as it is. And so I think that a lot of the times the people that I like most. Are the contextual readers, you know, like uh, you know, like Nibley and in the Old World, and Welch and Peterson, and and uh, Carol Givens, and uh, you know, all of these people that have taken that approach, and I like Brant Gardner and and Sorensen and those books because they they help me stand, you know, where the authors stood and look where they looked, and I see more, and I see it just so much reminds me that there's so much that. If I'm just looking at the meaning without, the, you know, the words without their context, there's stuff I'm going to miss. So, um, and because there are so many people with specialist knowledge that have been contributing to Book of Mormon study, you know, people that will spend a, uh, a lifetime preparing their minds to read it, and they've done a, you know, a completely different training than I've got, then they'll show me things that I never would have seen and never would have imagined. So. I, I get a, this constant sense of awe and humility when I read the scholarship of faithful Latter-day Saints. And then when I occasionally go back just, you know, for balance or check to, to read some approach that, uh, looking at the Book of Mormon that, that from a scholarly angle where they're just treating it like a 19th century text, the contrast that I see in what they actually perceive and how much they can actually uh, explain is... For me, faith promoting. You know, for the, the I, I haven't read uh, criticism of the Book of Mormon for decades that has given me any trouble whatsoever, because uh, the preparation that I get from reading you know, the, the best readings by the defenders, it just there's just so much more there to the book, and uh, and the the superficiality and the shallowness of a lot of the the criticisms is is what I come away with. That they're just 
the book that they don't believe in isn't the same book that I believe in. And so much of the difference is, is care and reading and, and the context that we bring to it. So, I mean, I think there's some good things out there. And uh, just today, Sean and I watched a, a program where they, they quoted the uh, a chess master was asked, you know, what's the best move in chess, the all-time best move? And he says, well, it depends entirely on the situation. So where a person is in the Book of Mormon study, you know, something like uh, there are, you know, there are a range of, of ways to get into it, you know, to kind of bring you up to speed. But just, you know, if a person finds something that appeals to you where you are and is going to take you a, a bit further along and open up your mind and eyes to the resources out there, then that's a good place to start. You know, I, I think these these are a good thing, a good resource. You know, these uh, you know, the, the books of questions or the books just getting you through it. When my wife was going to BYU, she took a class from... Uh, from Brother Scouseman, and he just had a, you know, the, the, a lot of the course involved just, you'd give handouts that you'd have to go through the Book of Mormon and find the words to fill in blanks, you know, and scriptures that had words missing. But she said that got her to read the Book of Mormon, and that's where her testimony came from. So even, even, it just depends on where a person is. Yeah. And these, these things are useful, because there, there are different people different scholars out there who have a different sense of what's a good way to go into the Book of Mormon. And the one that appeals to you where you are is good. Yeah, that, that reminds me. I, I, um, you know, I've, I've been doing this book review program in St. George for a long time. And so I have a lot of experience in communication with people at various reading stages, no matter what it is, one of which is, of course, the Scriptures. And I used to I used to see this series that you know pops out, and I can't remember who the publisher is. Uh, David Ridges does it, and various books where it says book of, book of, might be Cedar Ford, but Book of Mormon made easier, the New Testament made easier, the Old Testament made easier, Isaiah made easier. And while I could understand the usefulness of some of those, I I always kind of shook my head looking at the Book of Mormon, saying. The Book of Mormon is plain. As Nephi yeah. says, and we were just talking about it last hour, he writes with plainness. How could that be? Well, I had a client who had, he didn't have much education, and he was a, a guy who'd been knocked around by life. He'd lived the high life, he'd lived the low life, spent a little time in jail, back and forth, and then he got sick right near the end. and. And uh, I remember he came to see me. The last, in fact, the last time I saw him, he was carrying a copy of David Ridge's book. And he didn't read much. He certainly wasn't what I'd call a scholar of the Book of Mormon. But it was like he, he told me that he realized he wasn't well. And he had decided that, that the regular Book of Mormon just was too hard for him. And so he was trying to read to help him understand it better. I gained a completely new appreciation of that book and that author and that series of titles the minute I could apply it to a real person, just like Kevin was talking about a second ago. And so I, I, I do think there is a utility and a usefulness and a value, which is why I took a little bit of issue with one of our previous co-hosts uh, who said he didn't feel that Grant's book would be helpful to many Latter-day Saints. And, and I take exception to that because I think there's a lot of Latter-day Saints that would appreciate the vast majority of what he's got. Now, when you hit a certain level, just like with anything else, you begin to see what's left out or what couldn't be got in because of space considerations or whatever, uh, whatever the choices are, just like John was talking about. And then you you kind of say, okay, for example, um, the, the recent book from the Maxwell Institute about Book of Mormon studies almost completely ignores any of the scholarship from the Interpreter Foundation. That's the Religious Studies yeah. Center published that. Oh, it, it was. Yeah. Ouch. It was yeah. Okay. I stand corrected. <laughs> that makes it worse. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I, I mean, I did a I did a uh, a survey of the the topics, and I think there's well, this was a month or two ago, so there's probably more. But uh, m more than half of the articles published by the Interpreter Foundation since it was founded in 2012 involved the Book of Mormon, and we're not just talking about 
little, you know, feel good pieces on the Book of Mormon. We're talking about substantial areas of scholarship or unique things where somebody takes their professional training and applies it in a certain way. Um, the, the article from Friday treats Second Nephi as a legal text, as an ancient legal text, which I, I haven't had a chance to dive into that yet, but I found it fascinating. I was John? going to look at it if it was uh, under 10 pages. It was not. Um, <laughs> anyway. Some of us have uh, So, John, you've got your own ideas about study Bible. I, I, Share that Well, okay, us. so. Study Book of Mormons, I should say. Yeah, so I think um, the, the one that I recommend is the earliest uh, Book of Mormon study edition, and that was the one the church put out in 1981. So if you look at that, it's got all of these study notes down in the footnotes. It's got the text. Um, scripture cross-references. Scriptural cross-references. It's very pared down to essentials, but that, that really is a study edition. Um, and you think about it, the church uses that in primary in Sunday school, in priesthood meeting, in Relief Society, in sacrament meeting, in, and I'm fairly certain that's the one that a lot of the general authorities use. Uh, but it's the one we give out to everybody. And it really is a study edition because it's not bare bones text. Um, if you want bare bones text, then which is you, my usual way of doing it, then you look at something like um, an 1830 reproduction, which is has in the past been my go-to choice uh, for personal reading. But if you're looking for a study edition, I still think that one's the best. Mm -hmm. um, but I also question really, do we? how much do we need these study editions? Um, because I think most of us, I think most of us think that the text of the Book of Mormon is, is fairly plain. I think that most of us um, get a whole lot more out of reading the text than reading about the text. Not that, um, that the other is necessarily bad, but I think more of us would rather read the text than read about the text. And that's one of the uh, things I notice with a lot of biblical scholars who know more about the text than they do the text. Um, and so I question whether we really need a, a study edition per se. Um, I don't f personally find them, you know, when I'm reading the Book of Mormon, I'm more interested in the text than I am in the notes. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the notes, and, and the nice thing about the, the church's edition is that if you want to ignore the notes, it's really easy to do. Yeah. <laughs> you just turn the page. Or, or or you just don't look down at the bottom, right? Mm -hmm. You just yeah. they're they're actually very well typeset and so that they're not obtrusive. They're there if you need them. Mm -hmm. They're not if you don't want them. And you can just read the text. Well, I think sometimes you want them and sometimes you don't. Yeah, and that that's true. And uh so you know, I I can understand the the urge that many of my colleagues have to put out their study editions, um, but I don't know if that they're necessary for most people. Yeah, I mean, in the Book of Mormon, because it's originally translated in English, doesn't require a lot of extra in order to understand the text. I mean, the notes that I prefer and appreciate, like from Grant and from others, uh, have to do with an emphasis that um, calls something to my attention from outside the text that, that you know, was a special point of emphasis or something like that, or that 
that reinforces it. I mean, one of the examples was uh, a place where uh, Moroni, Mormon uses a, the words verily, verily to describe Captain Moroni of what type of a man he was. Mm. And the only place that that phraseology is used in the Book of Mormon is when Jesus uses it. So it's, you know, the, those are the kinds of things that, uh, that pop up in that way. But it, it really is a, uh, it, it's a valuable viewpoint. And I remember how excited I was when the 1981 edition came out. Because, oh, it, it, and, and the Bible, the, the 79 Bible. I, I remember oh, yeah. walking through the snow to the mission office to get the copy that Elder Blako, our, our uh, you know, supply secretary, had held out for me. And I still have that one with the Terry Hutchinson annotations, just like Kevin was talking about earlier. How about you, Kevin? Uh, well, I went on my mission in 78, so I've got an, or 73, rather, so I, I've <laughs> got an older one. I bought the later ones, but I found that uh, I just keep on going back to my missionary Bible because I'm used to it. Okay. And I've, I've looked at other editions, and I appreciate them being there, and I think, you know, there's been progress and improvements, and... I like to see the options and the effort being put into this because I think there's an audience for it, clearly. Otherwise, they wouldn't Well, and, and the electronic versions that allow annotations and notes of your own that track with your membership account is yeah. a, is a mm -hmm. feature that I've just started to take advantage of. Um, I love yeah. the paper, though. I love the physical book, but that's also... No, that, uh, that actually is... It, most readers... Um, are that way. They prefer to have a physical copy in their hand. Um, and I have a story, but I don't have time to share it. So, yeah, uh, yeah well, we don't even get, didn't even get to the Isaiah stuff we were going to talk about with John. And uh, John is actually going to be at a couple of conferences. So he's taking a short sabbatical from Interpreter Foundation for well, us. For the next two months. For the next two months. But uh, we <laughs> will get to that because John's got an Isaiah journey that uh, is worth hearing. That yeah. does tie in with some of what we talked about today. It does. Um, but there'll have to be another time. That's right. So we want to thank you for being with us. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, John. Thank you. A another evening of enlightenment on my part anyway. And uh, we want to thank those of you who were listening to us live and those of you who will be listening to us on the podcast. Uh, we appreciate your support for the Interpreter Foundation. Thank you, and uh, join us again next week for Interpreter Foundation Radio. This is Terry Hutchinson with uh, John Gee and Kevin Christensen signing off.